1: Teachers around the world at every grade level use Away with Words in classrooms as a launching pad for discussion. Learners of all kinds use it to sharpen their skills in yet another language. Help us help them by giving at waywardradio.org slash donate today. Thank you. You're listening to Away with Words, the show about
2: language and how we use
1: it. I'm Grant Barrett.
2: And I'm Martha Barnett. Grant, I've been reading a book in a field I know almost nothing about. And there's a whole lot in this book about guts and toes.
1: You mean guts like my innards and toes like the little things at the end of my feet?
2: Actually, no. Spelled the same way, G-U-T and T-O-E, but they're acronyms.
1: Oh, acronyms. Mm. T-O-E, top of uh, Everest. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> G-U-T, get under table. Uh, that's earthquake advice, right? <laughs> I don't know. What, are they, what's, what is it? What are you learning about, Martha? It's always something new.
2: Um, this is a book about cosmology. Gut is a physicist term for grand unified theory. And uh. Toe, T-O-E, you probably remember Stephen Hawking talking about this. Yeah,
1: I read his book when I was a
2: kid. Okay, yeah, The Theory of Everything. Right, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, this is a fascinating book. It's called The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking, and it's by Katie Mack, who is an assistant professor of physics at North Carolina State University. And Katie Mack is a theoretical astrophysicist, which means that she studies cosmology seeking to understand the universe from its very beginning to its very end. She's trying to find fundamental truths about the way that the universe works. And uh, it's a challenging book, but she's an amiable nerd who's endlessly fascinated by her topic. She's the scientist that you want to sit down next to at the pub and just let them rip.
1: Or, or be on an airplane with from coast to coast, right? Sitting next to... Yeah. <laughs> I, one, I once sat next to an obituary writer from the New York Times on an airplane. And it was one of the best flights I've ever had. Oh,
2: it's, wow. It,
1: that's really, it was really fantastic.
2: Oh, my gosh. That is on my lifetime bingo card. So you
1: said the book was very challenging, and I'm imagining yes. that despite it being challenging, you're finding all this language to latch onto, and you're kind of hopping from toadstool to toadstool, language to bit <laughs> to language bit, to kind of rescue you.
2: <laughs> As I do, that's exactly it, Grant. <laughs> so I do want to talk about that book a little bit more later in the show, and I'd love to hear what you're reading reading
1: oh yeah i'd love to talk about what i'm reading too and you know martha and i would like to hear what you're reading and what you think everyone else should be reading too 877-929-9673 or talk to us about anything related to language words speech writing literature slang new words old words or old expressions and new expressions words at waywardradio.org or on twitter at w-a-y-w-o-r-d
2: Hi there. You have a way with words.
3: Hi. How are you? Uh, my name is Nicole, and I'm calling from Indianapolis.
2: Great. Well, what would you like to talk with us about?
3: Well, my husband and I have been in dispute about the word buoy. He is from England, and he is convinced that the way that we should say this word is "boy," um, And I am from New England, and I disagree. I think it's buoy. Um, so we were hoping for some clarification and, uh, maybe to avoid a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> to
2: avoid, you know, we usually ask what the, what the stakes are, you know, if, it, if it's washing dishes stakes. for a week or something, but, th- but this is, Grant, this may be the, uh, the highest stakes oh, we've ever, uh...
1: <laughs> we're talking tea in the Harbor and the whole thing, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. Yes.
1: <laughs> uh, B-U-O-Y, right?
3: Yes. Yes.
1: Okay, tell me, how often are you encountering this word in your daily life?
3: (laughs) Well, yeah, not as often as you would think, but we do like to uh, bring it up with each other, uh, probably partly because of the accents. Um, Yeah. So we were visiting my family in New Hampshire and went to the seacoast, and on the restroom doors, they had B-U-O-Y for the gents, and then on the ladies, (laughs) they had gulls, (laughs) G-U-L-L-S. So this is where Dominic said that, um, he's like, look, it's boys and gulls. And I said, no, oh. it's buoys and gulls. So he accosted a stranger to try to get uh, somebody on his side. And the stranger agreed with me. So it's just been heated ever since.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. I bet this is a daily yeah. curse. I bet this isn't the only word, right? This isn't the only <laughs> Cross-linguistic dispute here.
3: No, it is not. Um, His argument, which I really struggle to, to, you know, come up with a defense against, is when you say the word buoyant— we yeah. don't say buoyant, so, uh, you know, I get that's a bit true. sheepish at that point.
1: <laughs> buoyant and buoyancy and life buoy soap. That's right. We don't say buoyant and buoyancy and life buoy soap. No, much to my chagrin. <laughs> but that's okay. There are lots of words that don't behave in pattern. English isn't consistent at all, you know. it wasn't. It wasn't a built language. It's an accreted language, so nobody planned it. It just kind of, you know, happened. You've come across one of those real nice uh, differences between U.K. and U.S. English. It bears repeating here that U.K. English isn't the supreme form of English, Um, and there isn't just one U.K. English. As soon as people left those shores for foreign shores, they started creating new varieties of English, and so did we. So their English has changed as much as ours has. So I'm not going to talk in particular about this word, but it's true. Almost everyone there pronounces the word B-U-O-Y as boy. Although some say it as boy, almost as if there's a W after the B, although it's less common. And many Americans, although not all Americans, say buoy, and some say boy. So it's just just an American way of saying it, and um, it's probably an inheritance from history where we kept an older pronunciation of the word that they dropped. It's probably as simple as that.
4: Okay.
3: I like to tell him that, um, you know, when people came over and settled in New England, that we got the language, but then we've evolved it.
2: The correct way. <laughs> well, well, <I'm> more evolved.
1: <laughs> maybe a better way to put it is that we've had influences that they haven't had. So a lot of cognates, that is words that are very similar to boy or buoy, exist in many European languages, including French, Spanish, Dutch, and German which have left their own imprints on American English. And I'm not sure of the history of this word in American English. It's possible that our pronunciation of the word is influenced from those other languages in a way that UK English is not, you know? Okay. And it's possible that we retained a regional pronunciation of the word that has long since been dropped in the UK, you know, or a English regional or British regional pronunciation that the UK dropped. And that happens a lot. So there's no question of right or wrong here. It's what was retained or what was created. So there's going to be increasing divergence over the <laughs> centuries. Eventually, it'll be like Spanish and Portuguese, I think. Right.
2: Yeah, so I think what Grant is saying is that you're both right and you can stay married. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, that definitely helps. you i argue helped. about something else. <laughs> right
1: does he insist on driving on the left-hand side of the road (laughs) ask him that
3: only after midnight
1: i mean when in indiana do like indianas right
2: right Right. (laughs) Right? do like hoosiers (laughs) yes okay stay boy now
1: bye-bye yes (laughs) bye Uh, We're buoyed up by your calls, 877-929-9673 or email words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words.
4: Hi, this is Morgan from Phoenix. How are you?
1: Hi, Morgan. Welcome to the show. What's up?
4: So I'm a plant engineer and I end up working with a lot of really smart people, you know, like engineers and technicians and operators. But I've found that like all of these technical people, Um, regardless of their age or area of expertise, like have really poor spelling skills and often um, have what I call like homophonic confusion. So I end up doing a lot of wordsmithing uh, when I'm reviewing their documents and it's end up being kind of my legacy in a way. However, I sent an email recently where I said I would pour over a document, P-O-U-R. And someone replied and used pour P O R E in the same context in response. And I realized I didn't know which one was correct. And you know, I might have been a little bit called out on that. So I'm wondering which is which is the correct one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's hard when you've been promoted kind of indirectly as the office language, Maven, you know, informally.
2: Yeah, no pressure there.
1: And you fall down, right? Yeah. And it happens <laughs> everywhere. There's always that person who is unofficially, sometimes officially, the one that people kind of said, can you look at this? This is really important. Um, Hmm. So you're worried that you confused your poor and your poor.
4: Yes, which isn't a big deal. But like you said, for me, oh, it is a big deal sometimes. (laughs) Because (laughs) the way I tried to approach it was I tried to think of, well, P-O-U-R. You're really pouring yourself into it physically. And then on the other Mm -hmm. hand, you have P-O-R-E, something very small and detailed. So I'm like, oh, I could I could see how either of these makes sense, but that's not really how language works all the time. <laughs> <laughs>
2: you're you're right about that's not how language works, Morgan. And the truth is that the correct word to use in those situations is P-O-R-E pour over something don't really know the origin of pour in that sense p-o-r-e but it goes back to the early 13th century um, a word that means to gaze intently or look really closely at something but you make a good case for why you would mistake it as p-o-u-r. you know you're pouring your attention you're pouring your mind out over that page So the homophone does make sense, and people have been confusing it for centuries, right, Grant?
1: Yeah, yeah. I found it in a a Derbyshire, England newspaper in 1770, a line about a gentleman in a clergyman's frock pouring over a file of country papers.
2: Well, maybe he was, uh... do you think? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's clear they meant the P-O-R-E, yeah.
1: But again and Uh. again throughout the centuries, you can find people making the same mistake, Morgan. So don't feel bad
2: good to know i'm not alone <laughs> so it sounds like maybe you have a rival maven or something there i i believe i do and i you know what
4: i'm happy <laughs> to pass that baton um as soon as they prove they are worthy um <laughs> that could be only
1: one yeah <laughs> that could yeah, be it's
2: like,
5: yeah maybe landed. it's not a
2: rival maybe <laughs> maybe it's a fellow word nerd
1: there we go. Lunch I, I would with. like
2: I would
4: like to think so because some of these guys, I'll tell you what, they spell like a horse, just like two hooves on the keyboard. I don't know what's going on over there <laughs> half the time.
1: Well, we all have our strengths, and we all have our weaknesses, and I hope that, I don't know what your plant makes and does, but hopefully they're good at the rest of their job.
4: Oh, absolutely. I I think it's kind of a little bit of a trade-off. I think, you know, they can't be good at everything. It's just interesting (laughs) how they seem to have this in common, and I don't, so maybe it's just a little bit of a bit of jealousy in that regard.
2: <laughs> That's great. Morgan, thanks so much. Bet you'll never spell this wrong again, right?
4: Oh, absolutely not. I've learned my lesson. Thank you so much for All your right. help and for right. being just an absolute source of a wholesome entertainment, recreational education for so many people. We just love you. Oh, thank you very
1: much, Morgan. Take care of yourself. All right. You too. Bye-bye.
2: Bye-bye. 877-929-9673. Support for Away With Words comes from a gift-honoring...
1: Got a minute? We need your help.
2: Head over to gum.fm slash words and share your thoughts in our quick survey.
1: Your feedback matters. It's the backbone of our show's success.
2: Thanks for making our show even more successful.
1: That's gum.fm slash words.
2: Thank you. Students of the San Diego Community College District. City College, Mesa College, Miramar College, and Continuing Education prepare them for jobs, personal goals, and transfer to universities. Sdccd.edu. Away with Words is funded in large part by donations from worldwide podcast listeners like you. Go to waywardradio.org/donate to keep new episodes coming. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett, and we're joined by our quiz guide,
1: John
6: Chinesky from New York City. Hi, John. Hi, Grant. Hi, Martha. Hey, John. I heard that you guys are familiar, at least familiar with, a video game called Among Us. Have you heard of that? Yes. Among uh, Us? Recently came to popularity, even though it had been out for a couple of years. That's right. It's suddenly hot all of a sudden. My kids love it. In this game, players try to figure out which among them are traitors who are sabotaging the group. Now, among players of Among Us, there's a popular word slang, sus. Do you know what it means if a player is sus? They are suspected. They are suspected or suspicious because, of Mm -hmm. course, we don't have time to say or type suspicious, so we just type S-U-S or say sus. So it got me feeling bad for... Orphan syllables. You know, what's wrong with picious? Let's give picious his time in the sun. <laughs> so I'm going to get a little closer to my raphone and give you clues to polysyllabic words that are commonly abbreviated with their first three letters. Now, I want you to give me just the orphan syllables. For example, if I said, your track team was supposed to be a practice today, but it was raining all day. What did you do? You might respond with, well, we ran laps in the nasium. <laughs> Got it? <laughs> Got it.
2: Not in your nose. <laughs>
6: Not in your nose. No, different kind of nasium. Here we go. Here's the first one. I've been using a website to keep track of the number of calories I burn, but I can't bring my computer with me. I wish there was a more portable option. Oh, location. Location. I wish there was a location. A location. <laughs> yeah, I wish there was a location for that. Right. As in application. App. Yeah, location right. on my Tella. So, uh, you guys were an hour late to my dinner party. What happened? Car trouble? Mm. Uh, oh, yeah, we ran out of Olean. Oh, you ran out of Olean. Yay. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. No gas. Olean. Car don't. Go. very good <laughs> now this one is part of a common two-word term hey you know i love what you've done with your new house what do you call this area where we you keep your television and books and gaming system and karaoke machine and poker table and all that stuff the reation room the reation room very nice i love it now back to the nasium You've lifted that barbell 49 times. Do you think you can give me just one more, or are you too exhausted? Oh, um. Can you give me some more appetitions? You can't you can't even do a, another etition? Another etition? That is single addition. Okay. Repetition. Right. Finally. It's really great to work with someone who knows what they're doing, someone who has a lot of experience in the field because they make their living at it. Professionals, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. they are professionals. You guys are both professionals. I like to think I'm a professional. Yes, right. We're all pros. Pro. You fessionals. do know who you're on with, right? This is Martin Grant. This isn't the other thing <laughs> that you do. Know? The other
1: professionals
6: <laughs> I work with. Right? I just want to say that you guys were. Euless, you were fabulous. Aww. Nice job. Thanks, John. We'll talk to you next week. Appreciate Thank it, Thank you, by. guys. Talk <laughs> to you then. Bye-bye.
1: This show is about words and language and grammar and literature and speech and talking and writing and everything in between. Give us a call, 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org or talk to us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello, you have a way with words.
7: Hi, um, this is Drew from Washington, D.C. How are you guys?
1: Hey, Drew. How you doing?
7: I'm doing really well. I'm really excited to be on today.
1: Oh, yeah. We're glad to have you. Welcome. What is on your mind?
7: Um, okay, so a few years ago, I went to a Cracker Barrel with my family. Well, what I wanted was I wanted a mix of lemonade and iced tea. I've always called that half and half. So when I ordered a half and half, I was expecting a lemonade iced tea combo, but they gave me what was seemingly a mix of sweet tea and unsweet tea when i asked the waitress um like oh i don't think this is what i ordered um she was like oh this is what i thought you said when you said half and half this is what i thought you meant and then she was like yeah like i know those as arnold palmer's and i was like interesting i had heard those kind of before but i thought half and half was kind of well known um as a term and in the years since i've been trying to wonder who called it arnold palmer versus who called it half and half what's kind of like the linguistic spread of that is Um, I thought it might have to do with race, uh, the black thing. Um, Some of my family's black and they call it half and half or maybe even class or even just like regional dialect. But of all the questions I've asked all my friends around the country, there's just so much variation in what they call it. So I was wondering if you guys can provide any sort of insight (laughs) on what the origin of the phrase is and what the spread of it is.
1: Okay, so oh, I think we can help here a little bit, Martha, can't we?
2: Yeah, I'm actually surprised that, um, that this was Maryland, because I know in Baltimore in particular, half and half is uh, is a really popular drink, uh, and it usually mm-hmm. refers to uh, what we call an Arnold Palmer. You have that with a chicken box.
7: Yeah, uh, I grew up uh, south of Baltimore in a suburb. Okay. Um, where everyone okay. there called it half and half, too, uh, to my knowledge. Uh-huh. All my friends called it yeah. half and half.
2: I'm not aware of a particular distribution of half and half referring to what we think of as an Arnold Palmer, the half lemonade and half sweet tea. Um, It's kind of here and there all over the country, wouldn't you say, Grant?
1: Yeah, my my understanding was, though, that that's what Arnold Palmer called it himself first Mm -hmm. when he started drinking this concoction in the 1960s.
2: Right, and he kept uh, going in and ordering these, and pretty soon they just got associated with, uh, with you know, it's like Arnold Palmer going in and, and asking for the usual, and um, yeah, yeah, that's. But I'm really interested in the mix of teas.
1: You can find some mentions of that, but again, it's like I was saying, it. Uh, I joked about it, but it's for those people who just can't stomach all that sugar in the southern sweet teas and just need a. It's a way of getting your sweet tea a little less sweet because it's made already sweetened, and there's no way to get it unsweetened. If you ask for unsweetened tea, people say, well, we don't have that. So <laughs> so, <laughs> so usually they'll add a, a water or um, something else. I don't know.
2: And more oh. often I've heard half and half referred to um, – in the in the context of, of alcoholic beverages like uh, like a Guinness and harp, you know, because the Guinness will, will lie there nicely on top of the the lighter ale.
1: Yeah, like a stout and an ale together, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Interesting. I've
1: actually I've never heard of it in the alcoholic context.
2: Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that goes back to gosh, at least the seventeen fifties. But um,
7: mm-hmm. but
2: yeah, you've you've found an interesting instance of that
7: i was wondering did you, did you guys grow up drinking this um and what did you guys call it growing up if so
2: no i didn't grow up drinking it in kentucky um i had it maybe once uh as a young adult and i thought it was so exotic
1: <laughs> no uh we drank sweet tea after the southern tradition yeah. in my father's house and if you put lemonade <laughs> it, i'm sure he'd have thrown thrown you out <laughs> 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 It, you'd, yeah, you'd been in the yard with all your belongings real fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I agree with Martha; there doesn't seem to be any regionality to it. I think it's just what you learned when you grew up. Um, it was probably called half and half originally, although Arnold Palmer didn't invent the drink. It existed before him. Right. Uh, there are records from the '40s and the '50s, and menus and newspapers of similar drinks, um, and there are many other drinks since that have been that have been. Mixtures of tea and lemonade and other things. Um, yeah,
2: there there are other names like sunshine tea, and then of course there are the um, the spiked versions of the Arnold Palmers,
1: like the Tipsy know. Palmer.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, or the John <laughs> Daly name for another uh, golfer who who liked to drink his with vodka.
1: Um, mm. This might merit more research. Um, foodways are a, kind of a sideline of ours because they map so well with wordways, so to speak. Um, When you look at the habits of eating and the habits of speaking, they're kind of braided together like a long rope. So maybe we need to look more into this, Martha. What do you call the tea and lemonade mixture in your house? What did you grow up with or what do you call it in a professional capacity? Let us know. And Drew, thank you for your call and thanks for bringing this up. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Drew. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
2: I've been thinking lately about prestige.
1: All right. Is there a trick here?
2: Yes. Actually.
1: (laughs) There's always another layer with you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there is. Yes, there is. But the the thing is that you always come up with, or you often come up with, um, exactly where I'm going, because there is a trick with the word prestige, because it comes from the Latin, the classical Latin prestigia, which means trick, deceit or illusion, and early on in English, prestige meant an illusion, a conjuring trick, a deception, an imposture. And what's also super cool is that it appears that the earliest pronunciation of this word was prestige prestige how about that yeah that
1: reminds me of something that always surprises people that the word balcony was originally pronounced balcony
2: balcony <laughs> yeah but it fascinated me to learn that early on it, it was an illusion or a trick and then it became um the idea of uh, impressive influence or glamour and then and then later on prestige as we think about it today you know something that's uh, that's I think a, the I,
1: reason I thought that is because there is a very excellent movie called The Prestige with Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman. Oh, um, really? And and a prestige is a magician's term as well. And I know a little bit about those, that language, that lexicon.
2: Wow. Well, I'd love to hear yeah. about that sometime, too.
1: I, I do recommend that movie. It is quite something, and I don't want to spoil any of it by talking about it at all. Oh, cool. 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words.
2: Yes, you do. And I do, too. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, who is this? (laughs) Apparently so. (laughs) My name is
8: Joan Meehan. I'm originally from the South Bronx, and I live in upstate New York. I'm 76. I've had a lot of experience with different phrases and sayings that is very unfamiliar to upstate people with the dialogue that I have. I was riding along with a friend. There was a car coming up very quickly on the on the right, and I said, you better give this car a wide berth. So then she said to me afterwards, they were trying to enter the highway, but they were really coming way too close to it. So she said, what's that word you use, berth? You know, wide berth. I said, oh, that means, like, I guess it was originally from maritime, you know, the uh, ships, you know, coming into the berth, or giving another ship a wide berth, and, in New York City, we used it as a, you know, certain people you wouldn't want to really hang out with or whatever, you need to cross over and you'd say, I, I, you know, maybe we should give them a white, you know, white birth.
2: Right, John, you're exactly right. Um, And you're spelling yeah. birth in this case, B-E-R-T-H, right? Not B-I-R-T-H.
8: B-E-R-T-H, a white birth, yes.
2: I'm interested that, that you mentioned the maritime connection. That's exactly it. If you go back to uh, uh, this dictionary I'm looking at from uh, this from 1730, it defines birth originally, B-E-R-T-H, as mm-hmm. convenient sea room or a fit distance for ships under sail to keep clear so as not to fall foul on one another. So it's exactly as you described. It's, it's giving uh, another vessel plenty of room. Did you know the maritime time uh connection already yes
8: uh, definitely because i lived near the east river and the Triborough bridge and and we we swam w- w- the, the docks there i mean you know <laughs> and that was okay. a swimming pool so you know there were ships that would commend the barges and everything and you heard a lot of terminology like that so that well, was my uh, my you know knowledge of it
2: well that is super i also cool. appreciate
1: the Figurative usage you were talking about about giving people a uh, wide berth, meaning stay away from them or keep them at a safe distance. Because uh, giving a wide berth can be about the psychological or emotional distance as well as the mm-hmm. physical distance.
6: Yes,
8: I mean it's fascinating. It's fascinating that there's so many terminologies. In other words, if you're going on it on a ship, you you know you can be in the upper berth or lower berth and travel. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I know know it from that.
2: Well, Joan, you sound like a kindred spirit, and we're really glad you called.
8: Thank you so much. It's wonderful being on the show. All right. Thank you, Be John. well. Bye-bye. Karen, I'll follow
1: you. Bye-bye. We'll make a berth for you on our radio show you, so you can talk to us about language. Give us a call, 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org or try us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D.
9: Hello. You have a way with words. Hello. My name is uh, Gopal. I am calling from Greenville, North Carolina.
1: Hello Gopal, welcome to the show. How can we help? Well, thank you.
9: Yeah, I was always uh, wondering about the, the phrase uh, "my two cents." So whenever uh, in office communications, uh, usually people put it at the end after saying their opinion or some idea, they put at the end that, okay, this is my two cents. I was wondering as to what is the uh, origin of that phrase or more importantly, why don't they call it as my one cent if it is representing a small idea? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Why do they say my two cents? Well,
2: oh, that's a really good question. And it's a really useful phrase, isn't it? Because it, it sort of colors what has come before, right? You're, it's, a, it's a kind of almost a, a humble or, or a modest little addition to it. It softens what you've just said, correct?
9: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I understand the usage part of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Sometimes it's, it doesn't do us any good to look at English too closely and, and parse phrases uh, too carefully. But uh, the, the term two-pence, twopence has been around since at least the 16th century um, to mean of very little value or, or paltry or worthless. Sometimes English just isn't logical. You can see examples of this back to the uh, the nineteenth century at least. Um, and I know that linguists have come up with a couple of examples from Philadelphia where um people were were using that expression and using it in quotation marks. Here's my two cents. You know, sometimes it just doesn't pay, so to speak, to to parse English too closely. I want to
1: spin this around, though, and, and talk about something you said early in the call, which I think deserves some attention, which is we often tack on, well, that's my two cents at the end of an opinion. And the reason we do this is to let people know that we're open to discussion and that we're willing to we're kind of hedging our statement where mm-hmm. we're letting them know that we mean what we say but we're also willing to soften our opinion a little bit it's a way of um reaching out to the other person let them know that we're maybe willing to negotiate or willing to accept other points of view and and that um it's a way of showing a little bit of uh, kindness or or Does that make sense? Okay, so
9: we are saying that we are not fixated on our idea, but we are open to other suggestions, and this is just my suggestion. Okay,
1: It's a really important thing to do when you're working with other people, right, to make sure that they know that you're um, thinking about them as much as you're thinking about yourself.
9: Okay, that's good. Yeah.
1: I hope we've done a little untangling here for you.
9: Yeah, yeah. I guess primarily uh, yeah, one shouldn't approach it uh, too much, uh, like logically or mathematically. So, language that's doesn't right. work that way.
1: Okay. Language isn't logical, and pigs don't sing opera. <laughs> okay. Okay, I got it. Thank you. Take care. Bye.
2: All right. Bye bye. So, that's our tuppence worth. That, that's how they say it in Britain, you know. That's just right. my tuppence worth. You can believe whatever you want. Huh.
1: And this is different than, um, penny for your thoughts. These are completely mm. independently derived idioms, but the idea of a penny for your thoughts is that a penny used to have a lot of value. A penny was right. a big sum of money, <laughs> right? A penny was like yeah. offering somebody, uh, you know, a $20 bill and yeah. it, it was meaningful. Yeah. But no, just like it's this
2: $64,000 question used to be much more valuable.
1: <laughs> right. You could buy a house, and now maybe that's yeah. a down payment.
2: <laughs> right. If that. <laughs> 877-929-9673. Hey, we've got something special for those of you who love our show but could do without the ads.
1: That's right. Imagine away way with words, the same engaging conversations, the same deep dives into language without advertising interruptions.
2: We're talking about our ad-free podcast feed. It's sleek, clean, and it's just for our supporters. It's at waywardradio.org slash ad-free.
1: It's inexpensive, easy to sign up for, and works with all major podcast apps like Apple Podcasts and Spotify.
2: It's an affordable way to support the show and get a seamless listening experience.
1: And if you're feeling generous, why not give a subscription to another Away With Words fan? That's waywardradio.org slash adfree.
2: Sign up today. Your support means the world.
1: waywardradio.org slash adfree. Thank you. This show is about language examined through family, history, and culture. Stay tuned for more. Support for Away with Words comes from Jack and Caroline Raymond, proud sponsors of Wayward Inc., the nonprofit that produces and distributes this program. You're listening to Away with Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett.
2: And I'm Martha Barnett. I was talking earlier in the show about the book I just finished by Katie Mack called The End of Everything, and she's a cosmologist at North Carolina State University and she studies the beginning of the universe and the end of the universe or what we can tell about it from uh, the science that we know right now it was a pretty ambitious read for me i have to confess that i'm uh, my mind is a little sore from the workout but uh, it was it was great mental cross training to at least try to read this book i'll confess that a lot of it was over my head but you know, over is relative if you think about it. If you think about the cosmos, <laughs> the word over right. <laughs> uh, is, is relative. And the fact that I'm even thinking in these terms, however simplistically, I, I think is a, is a testament to the book itself. Um, but I did want to share a passage that uh, is an example of sort of the mind-expanding way that Katie Mack writes. And it also includes a term that was new to me. It is said that astronauts returning from space carry with them a changed perspective on the world, the overview effect, in which, having seen the Earth from above, they can fully perceive how fragile our little oasis is and how unified we ought to be as a species, as perhaps the only thinking beings in the cosmos. For me, thinking about the ultimate destruction of the universe is just such an experience. There's an intellectual luxury in being able to ponder the farthest reaches of deep time and in having the tools to speak about it coherently. When we ask the question, can this all really go on forever, we're implicitly validating our own existence, extending it indefinitely into the future, taking stock and examining our legacy. Acknowledging an ultimate end gives us context, meaning, even hope and allows us, paradoxically, to step back from our petty day-to-day concerns and simultaneously live more fully in the moment.
1: The overview effect, yeah, I've heard of that before. The, the pictures looking back from Saturn's rings of this tiny glowing dot that happens to be Earth, and you realize how utterly small we are against this, pin, all these pinpoints of the other stars in our galaxy and the universe behind
2: yeah, yeah. It really gives us uh, some perspective. And, and I don't know, I feel like I needed that right now, just just really zooming out to look at the earth.
1: That sounds like a wonderful book. You know, I had a, a, another experience through my son's eyes. He recommended a, a book series to me, which he doesn't often do. But uh, all these years, my wife and I, mostly my wife, have been reading books to him at bedtime. And they started on Lois Lowry's The Giver series. This book has been around for quite some time and is well known in Uh, young adult circles and often recommended by libraries and librarians and teachers often recommend it to their students. But it was new to me. And he said he wanted me to read it so that we could discuss it as a family. So I started it. And this series gave me a perspective on what he's going through as a teenager, because it's about a, a young boy, Jacob, who lives in a strange society where um, life is highly regulated and controlled. Their feelings are repressed. They don't see color. They don't have um, the same relationships with each other that we have. They're assigned spouses. They're assigned children. Mm -hmm. The first book uh, gives the series its name. It's called The Giver. And The boy reaches an age where he is to be assigned his adult duties that he will train for, and he's assigned to be the receiver, and he meets the giver, and this new position puts him in a place to learn histories, feelings, and sensations that have been kept from everyone else in his community, and this knowledge changes his life and leads to a dramatic ending. The second book is seemingly unconnected when you first read it, but across the four books, the uh, you kind of see the, all of these four stories coming together, and they all deal with young people coming of age, and they all deal with decisions and culture that these young people have inherited, um, and they're all wrestling with their places in it, and whether or not they can accept those past decisions of others and this culture as, as they are, or whether they must change them or, or fight against them. And I, I've really been enjoying these, uh, not least because my son recommended them and obviously I want to mm. connect to him, but also because the protagonist, unlike a, a lot of young adult literature, they're not jaunty sex pots or or your typical <laughs> young adult heroes, you know. It's not all about, um, you know, do they find me attractive? Oh, yeah, let uh-huh, me kill this uh-huh. bad guy, you know, um, you know, paragraph alternating with um, smooches on one paragraph and sword fights in another. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, my son Guthrie recommends Lois Lowry's The Giver series, and so do I.
2: And we'd love to know what you're reading. Give us a call, 877-929-9673, or tell us all about it in email, words at waywardradio.org. Hi there, you have a way with words.
1: Hi,
10: Martha. uh, This is Laura. I'm calling from Ithaca, New York. Hey, Laura, welcome to the show. I have a question about a word I found in the Cornell Fight Song. The word is piker. It's supposed to mean freshman, but I can't find any other place where piker is used like that, except in Ithaca, New York, in the fight song. Uh-huh.
1: Mm, okay. And you got to sing the fight song for us.
10: <laughs> <laughs> I promised myself I wouldn't do that. I'm, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> um, the line is, tell all the pikers on the hill that I'll be back again. Um, The song's Give My Regards to Davey, and he's saying goodbye to the administrator who kicked him out after he got caught drinking too much. Uh
1: Uh-huh. Okay, gotcha. Oh, my.
10: I don't know what it has to do with playing sports, but that's our fight song.
1: Okay, okay. So first, let's establish a, a couple things here. One is Piker has had a lot of meanings, and slang is really hard to tease out. So given those two things... Because we're going to get a lot of people who are going to email or call and say, Piker means somebody who places small bets at a gambling table. Yes, we know. But there's our other pikers as well. And, and we're going to talk about the other pikers. So let's talk a little bit about this fight song. It was written in 1905. It is to the tune of Give My Regards to Broadway, uh, written by George Cohan for his 1904 musical Little Johnny Jones. Everyone, give my regards to Broadway. Remember me to Herald Square. That tune, right?
10: Yep. Tell all the pikers on the hill that I'll be back again.
1: There we go, yeah. That's great. <laughs> and so we, a good thing that we have a date for that, then we know which piker to go for. We can kind of look back in the old newspapers and in the slang reference works and figure out which piker was being used in Ithaca, New York, which is where Cornell University is located, at the time to figure out which one was most likely. And I love that you did your own field work because you found what I would find, which is the piker, meaning freshman, doesn't really work. And the Big Red Band on their website has an FAQ where they try to puzzle out the song and explain everything, and they've done a really good job, except for the word piker. They simply say it means freshman, and I think they're wrong. I think piker just means what you said. It's somebody who... Is the opposite of a grind, which was another word at the time, and actually still kind of used. Yep, I found piker and grind in a newspaper in 1905 in association with Cornell. So the same year that the song was written, and piker meant a poor student, a shirker, a lazy student. The opposite of a grind. A grind is a, a studious student, one who does all the reading on time, who, uh, who paces it out over the year and doesn't have to cram at the end of the year. And so that piker is probably related to a larger slang piker that was floating around the United States at the time, which referred to a shirker, or um, just a person who is just not doing their best. And, and a little bit related to the poker piker, uh, someone who only puts up tiny bets when they should be betting more, somebody who's reluctant to commit, reluctant to give their uh, all, somebody who um, is unwilling to help other people, somebody who's unwilling to like step out. A piker also at the time was... A man who wouldn't splurge on a date. He might take her out for a hot dog instead of for dinner. That sort of thing.
2: So, so the song is telling all the pikers that is the the lazy students that uh, yeah we'll see you later. So first he says goodbye to the administrators who kicked him out, and ah. then
10: tells the pikers, "I'll be back, and we'll have a drink when I come back." <laughs> what a bad influence, huh? Right. Thank you guys so much. We're yeah, glad sure. you called, Laura. I'm so glad you could help. I was so excited when I saw this song and saw that word. I was like, I'm going to call Grant and Martha. <laughs>
9: <laughs> I did call
1: them. Laura,
2: you guys thank so you much. for your
1: call. Take care <laughs> yeah. now. All Be right. Well. Take care.
2: You. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. If there's a word you're curious about, call us, 877-929-9673, or email us. The address is words at waywardradio.org. Following up on our discussion about the phrase, can't died in a cornfield, we heard from Todd White in Woodstock, Virginia, who said, my dad used to say to us, can't never could, won't never will.
1: Yeah, that's a good one. So this is the stuff you say to kids when they say,
2: I can't do it, Daddy. It's too hard. (laughs) That's right. Instead of try harder. Can't never could, won't never will.
1: 877-929-9673.
2: Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is uh, Kathy Constable. I'm calling from Rye, New York. Rye, New York. Well, welcome, Kathy. What can we do for you?
0: When I was living in central Pennsylvania, I had the experience of going to someone's house, and the husband asked me if I'd like a cup of coffee, and his wife said, Oh no, the coffee's all. I looked at her and I looked at him. And then the son of these people, he whispered and he said, That means it's all gone. What I found when I was in this area is that people would always use the term, Oh, it's all. They wouldn't say it's all gone or it's all mm-hmm. done. It took me a while to get used to understanding what they meant. And I just wondered where it came from. I talked to other people in rural areas of the country, and they never
1: heard of it. So you were in central Pennsylvania, Kathy?
0: I was in central Pennsylvania in a farming area.
1: Were there a lot of Pennsylvania Dutch speakers in the area?
0: It was not a Pennsylvania Dutch area, it's it was a li- it's a, a little north and west of that. Um, there were a lot of, Ger- you know, Pennsylvania Germans in that area. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, what you've heard, uh, despite the fact that there may not have been Pennsylvania Dutch speakers exactly where you were, is an imprint of the Pennsylvania Dutch language. The Dutch meaning in this case a dialect of German, not actually Dutch Dutch. Um, uh-huh. And it's a. a a calc C-A-L-Q-U-E, from that dialect of German where the word all, A-L-L-E, all, um, means um, finished or gone. And um, so it's borrowed directly from German into English and used exactly in uh-huh. English as it would be in German. And you can find it as far back as the 1850s, mainly in Pennsylvania, but also a little bit in Indiana and Ohio, in the places where the Pennsylvania Dutch speakers settled, even if people no longer speak the language there.
2: Well, that explains a lot. Yeah. It does. And we're grateful to you for the field report. Okay. Call us again sometime. And thank you. You broadened my knowledge. All (laughs) right. Bye-bye. Well, we welcome your linguistic field reports and questions. Call us 877-929-9673 or send your emails to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Uh, My name is Vanessa and I am
5: in just out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, I live between Door County, Wisconsin and Nashville, Tennessee. So we're just heading to the airport actually.
2: Oh, you live between those?
5: Yeah, I do. I'm a Kiwi um, from New Zealand and I split my time between Nashville, Tennessee and Door County, Wisconsin.
2: Okay. Well, welcome to the show. What can we do for you?
5: Well, I have uh, a boyfriend and a couple of cats and I call my boyfriend and one cat in particular a Wally fairly often. And he questioned me one time about what Wally actually meant and I wasn't really able to explain it. I I could tell him what my sentiment was. But I couldn't really explain actually what the word meant or where it came from.
1: I have a bunch of reference works on uh, a Kiwi slang and Australian slang and uh, different things, and I've I've done some digging on this word. I found it as far back uh, as the 1980s, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's older. But there's a firm meaning of it as a silly, daft, or an ept person. But it's possible it goes back as far as the 1920s with a more general meaning of an unfashionable person. Um, although the evidence back to the 1920s is scant and by unfashionable person, I mean the kind of person who, you know, wears, uh, they're kind of just out of touch with how they look and, uh, you know, they're wearing the wrong clothes at the wrong time and the wrong jacket, the wrong season, that sort of stuff. And it's not just, uh, uh, New Zealand uh, also used in Australia, pretty much anywhere outside of North America and English speaking world. Um, you'll hear it in the UK. You might hear it in South Africa, of course, Australia, and so forth. Not in Canada. Not in the United States. Uh, as far as the origin, there's three theories that the slang lexicographer Jonathan Green has proposed that I kind of like. Um, one of them is that it's related to the British slang word for cucumber, wally, spelled a variety <laughs> of ways, but also W A L L Y. And a wally, um, besides meaning a cucumber perhaps means a green, unskilled, inexperienced person. We call somebody green if they're new at a job, right? And likely to make mistakes. Um, But there's also a Scottish word, wally drag, meaning a runt or a poorly grown person or somebody who's worthless or slovenly dirty. That's less likely because there's already a wally in Scots English, which has the opposite meaning of what you're talking about. It means fine, excellent, strong, great. And then he's got a third theory, which there's no evidence for, but I'm going to throw it out here. There's an Italian, a Naples dialect Italian word, guaglio, G-U-A-G-L-I-O, means boy. So I don't know. It sounds vaguely like Wally. But really, it's origin (laughs) unknown, like a lot of slang. Most slang just kind of pops up. Uh, People don't know. Um, I, I want to say, Vanessa, you living in Wisconsin and Nashville, you must have accent whiplash uh, given that you speak with a Kiwi Kiwi accent and you live in two very distinct American dialect regions,
5: yeah, and I, I definitely have probably picked up elements of both accents. You know, to Americans here, I sound very foreign, but I know when I go back to to New Zealand, everyone thinks I sound like American, which is not true. My <laughs> right? accent is I'm, my accent's just a mess. That's the that's the fact of it.
1: Uh, but but I bet it's original and unique to you exactly. All right. You call us again sometime and let us know what else you've come across. These these (laughs) cultural collisions are are super fascinating.
5: Yeah, totally. I will. I have to think of another insult that I use.
1: (laughs) Yes, please. Affectionate. Take care yourself, Vanessa. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for
2: explaining. It's great. All right. Uh Bye. Take care. We do enjoy hearing about those cultural collisions, whether they're international or regional in this country. So let us know your story, 877 929 9673, or send it to us in email. The address is words at waywardradio.org.
1: Support for Away with Words comes from Tom Benn. Bags, backpacks, and cloth face masks. Designed and made in Seattle. Portable culture since 1972. Tom Benn. That's T-O-M-B-I-H-N dot com.
2: Thanks to senior producer Stephanie Levine, editor Tim Felton, and production assistant Rachel Elizabeth Weisler.
1: You can send us messages, subscribe to the podcast and newsletter, and catch up on hundreds of past episodes at waywardradio.org.
2: Our toll-free line is always open in the U.S. and Canada. 877 929 9673 or email us words at waywardradio.org.
1: Away with Words is an independent production of Wayward Inc., a nonprofit supported by listeners and organizations who are changing the way the world talks about language.
2: Many thanks to Wayward board member and our friend Bruce Rogo for his help and expertise. Thanks for listening. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. Until next time, goodbye. Bye bye.